The rest of us, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. All right. Um, how many of you uh, would trade, um, if you had an option, uh, would trade filet mignon for bologna? How many of you would trade a Rolls Royce for a Yugo? I don't know. Do they make Yugos anymore? I haven't seen. I don't think they do, do they? Remember Yugos? That's true. So they're Slavos now? <laughs> or that's right. They does. It's Serbia. What is former Yugoslavia? Is what Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia Herzegovina, right? See all the free stuff, free geography you get. So maybe that was the demise of the Yugo. How many would shop at Bargain Basement if you had a ten thousand dollar gift card to Saks Fifth Avenue? In other words, not. Usually, we don't trade uh, something that is of highest quality for something that is of lowest quality. Unless, of course, finances. I remember, you know, sometimes you just can't afford the highest quality. But generally speaking, we rarely, if ever, will voluntarily trade something of highest quality for something of lowest quality. And I think, beginning in verse 9, Paul is is essentially making that kind of argument because at the end of, if you remember verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which, to, which depends on human tradition and, and depends on the ABCs of this world's wisdom rather than on Christ. In other words, he's saying, why would you take that which is of lowest quality and... and and not accept that which is of the highest quality. Really, which, what he gets now into in verse 9, because verse 9 start, starts by saying, For in Him, which follows from verse 8, For in Him, who's Him? Christ. In fact, many of our translations write Christ in there to make that, that connection clear. But he says, For in Him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And notice that verse 9 begins with a four. F-O-R, which means that it is talking about either a reason or a result of what he has just said. So as a result of what I've just said, that you are not to be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy for the reason being in him. In fact, I'm going to read this text, our text this morning, and I'm going to emphasize what I think is the main idea in this section. Okay? So let's start again in verse 9, and let's see if you can pick up on it. I'll make, try to make it as obvious as I can. For in Him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him, or in Him, in baptism, in which you were also raised in Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross, or probably in Him. Now, if you were to give a title, the title is to reflect the theme, what would it be? In Him. Thank you. In Him. This is all about in Him. And, and, and in fact, this concept of in Him is, a, is really a vital truth related to our salvation. And in fact, related to all of our relationship with God. So the outline is really easy. It's just two parts. The first part is Paul is going to talk about his nature in verse 9. And he's going to talk about his work in verses 10 through 15. So let's look at his nature. Verse 9. For in him, who's him? Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Now, now what's he saying there? Interesting that he uses this word fullness. If you remember back in our introduction to the book of Colossians, one of the things that this church was facing was what we, a, a, a early form of what later became full-blown Gnosticism. Gnosticism was kind of an Eastern uh, mystical uh, religion or worldview, really was a worldview, uh, that um, deemed that basically that body, material things are evil and bad and restrictive. And our goal in life is to, is to escape the body, is to escape this physical material universe and become pure spirit. And this was very much in line with Greek metaphysical type thinking. Um, and, and they usually went one of two ways. So they said that pure spirit is pure good. Pure physical or material is evil and bad. And, and they called, and, and you would progress uh, from pure material to pure spirit through a series, uh, series of emanations. And, and it really begged the question, what, what would you look like when you're half spirit and half body? I guess they didn't work, work all that through, think that one through. But the distance between pure material and pure spirit, they called the pleroma. They called the fullness. That was the fullness. And so when Paul says that Christ is the fullness, what is he saying? All of that's... He's, now, he's not capitulating. He's not saying that Christ is a, just another emanation. He's saying that every concept that you have of fullness, Christ is and more. In other words, your concept of fullness is deficient. Christ is the fullness. And, and he says something particular about this fullness. What does he say? In Christ, all the, he doesn't just say all the fullness dwells. He's not just saying the pleroma dwells in Christ. But what does he say? All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What do we call that? Starts with in, rhymes with our nation. Incarnation. This is, this is yet another passage talking about the incarnation of Christ in bodily form. Now, why would, he, why would it be important for him to say bodily form? Because the Gnostics said what? Body's bad. He's saying, no, the body's not bad. God dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that Jesus Christ is full deity... This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus you have to believe in in order to be saved. That He is the fullness of God, full deity, and full body. Fullness in body. 
He is, he is the fully God. He is fully man. Now, this is important. He's not partly God and partly man. He's not 50% man, 50% God, and then they kind of combine for 100%. No, he's 100% God. He's full deity, the fullness of deity, and he's fully body, the fullness of body. And, and, and Paul says this, this, is, this is superior and preeminent over this, 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 what does he say, this empty and deceptive philosophy, this, this hollow meaningless philosophy that's based on man's wisdom and, 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 and the ABCs of this world, the elemental principles of this world rather than Christ. So, very clearly, he says, number one, his nature, the fullness, he is fully God and he is fully man. Now, keep your marker here and turn to John 1. Most of us are familiar with this verse or these verses. John chapter 1. So, shortened version, if, Je- if anybody says, who's Jesus? There's a lot of different titles, Son of God, Lamb of God. But here's what I'm encouraged to do. Who's Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Alright? You're always safe. That's biblical language. He's fully God and fully man. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, how in the world can the Word... Let's Let's... Say for a moment, we don't know who the Word is, but we know He's a person. But how in the world can someone be both God and with God? That seems to be a conundrum at best, if not a contradiction. Well, if you have the notion of the Trinity, it's not a problem. Three persons... Three separate persons, three distinct separate persons, but all sharing the very same essence as God. So he was not only with God, but he was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. See see a lot of the Colossians coming through in this. Without him nothing that was made has been made. In him was life, that life was the light of all mankind. That uh, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was God and the Word was with God. We have a, a unity of essence. We have a distinction in persons. That's Jesus Christ. He, he's not just... A lot of people say, well, they, they, He's the Son of God, thinking that Son means the same way that we mean Son. No, the Son of God was a title. It was, it was, it was, it was a messianic title. His nature, He is fully God and fully man. The, the eternal God-man. When we get in heaven, Jesus still has a body. He will be forever the eternal God-man, the Anthropos. So, Paul starts off by saying, listen, if you want this filet mignon, here it is. The filet mignon is not this hollow, deceptive, meaningless philosophy. It is the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God. The where, the the, the Fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. But then he moves quickly into his work. Verse 10. And this is where we start getting the in hymns. Oh, by the way, he says, in him, you have been brought to fullness too. So now, is that fullness the same fullness that Jesus, that he's talking about with Christ? In other words, are, are we 
fully deity? Are we full deity? No. Obviously, no. So what does he mean when he says, number one, because of who he is and his work now has brought you to fullness. I like what John Murray said. He said, our union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. In other words, our in-himness is central to the whole doctrine of salvation. He said, we have been brought to fullness by virtue of our union with Him. But what is that? Uh, Probably several things. Number one, uh, that we were... um, we have all that we need for salvation. We, he is all that we need to have a relationship with God. So, the fullness is fullness of our need. We have been brought to completeness. We don't need anything else. It's not Christ plus this, Christ plus that. He said because of who Christ is, we need not go anyplace else. We have been brought to fullness. We have been brought to completion. So what is it? What is it when he says we are in him? Um, let, let, let me suggest what it is not. Uh, number one, it is, it is not um, a merger of our, of our um, natures. Contrary to what Kenneth Copeland says, we are not little gods. When we are in Him, it doesn't mean that we now have assumed His nature. Because His nature is divine. It is fully God. So, unless you want to posit that you are fully God, um, that's not what it means. It is not the merger of nature. nature. It, it, is, it is contrary to what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. Now, this, this, at the risk of being overly simplistic, Eastern Orthodoxy... Uh, they have a they have a doctrine called theosis. Theosis means it's a joining of the human with the divine. It is in essence a merger of natures, and we become like him in his nature. Um, now they deny that that means that we become gods, but they say that there is in fact a joining, a theosis, a joining of my nature with the divine nature. So, that's, that's, as we're going to see here, that's really not what the Bible teaches. Um, it, it is not a joining of natures. In Him does not mean we, we have a joining of natures. On the other hand, it's not just a mere association with Him either. It, it's not just like, uh, well, we're friends. We are not in Him in the sense that He's our friend and I'm His friend. So, somewhere in between, we... we, we it's not an actual joining or uniting of natures. On the other hand, it's not just a friendship. It's not just an association with Christ. There's something more to it. And that's what we want to look at. So he says, In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Him, you have been brought to fullness. Because He is the head over every power and authority. Now, um, the, the, the power and authority... What does that mean? You should ask yourself, what power? What authority? Again, what we're, what, in our home groups, what we're trying to do with, our, with the questions we're giving you is to give you, get you thinking along the lines of asking questions of the text. What does it mean? What power? What authority? 
Well, it may be human power and human authority. Uh, certainly he has, um, what does it say? He, has, he is the head over every human power, over every human authority. We, we know that, that government was instituted by him. Government, do you know that our government is under the authority of Christ? They are accountable to Christ. Government was his institution. And so these evil rulers, these evil judges, these evil rulers will give an account to Christ because they are under his authority. They will give an account. Or he could be talking about spiritual powers and authorities. Uh, we, we see in Ephesians, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, most of us are familiar with, with the, spiritual, you know, the spiritual warfare chapter. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So this could very well be spiritual powers. For, so, or it could be both. I would suggest it's probably both. He is over. He is head. He has ultimate authority over all powers, all authorities, whether human or spiritual. So what does it mean then for him to be, for us to be in him? Because verse 11 now, he's going to start talking about all the in hymns. Um, let me suggest two things for us to maybe think about in terms of what it means to be in Christ. Because we see it all over the New Testament. Paul loves this phrase because it's, it's from the Holy Spirit. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be in Christ? Now, when we hear the preposition in, we typically think of location. I'm in the building. Um, that means I'm, ta- I'm, I'm referring to a location. Or I, I walked in the store. I, it, it, it is a location. But in can also have other connotations as well. So the question is, uh, when we say we are in Christ, that means that I'm, my location is in is Christ? No. So it has to have some other kind of connotation. Let me suggest two analogies. Um, the first one is, is when we talk about in Christ, we're talking about a union. It's not a joining. It's not a mere association. It's a, it's a, it's a union. That it's a legal union. The first one is a legal union. Um, and union is that which is made into or caused to act as a single entity. So, when we are in Christ, we, it is a legal relationship that we are acting as a single entity. So, when, when God sees Christ, He sees us. When He sees us, He sees Christ. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, quite the opposite. But it, it is a, because of this union this legal union, we are now deemed as, as one entity. So think of it in terms of um, a legal relationship. That all that is Christ is now ours. All of His merit is now our merit. All of His righteousness is now our righteousness. Not an actualization. We're not actually as righteous as Him, but legally... We are righteous. In fact, remember Colossians 1.23? We are holy and blameless in His sight. Why? Because of our own righteousness? No, because we are in Christ. Because of our relationship, our union with Christ, we are viewed as one entity. So that when God sees Christ, He sees us. When He sees us, He sees Christ. And that is incredible to think about. Now, I know that you, you, you don't sin nearly as much as I do. So it probably means more to me. This is incredible to think that, that, that there's a legal union that when God sees Christ, He sees me. 
So think of in Christ as being a legal union. And, and oftentimes in the church, this has been taught as our position in Christ. Have you heard that? Our position in Christ. And I never really understood what our position was. But I think what it is, is they're referring to is this, this legal relationship, this legal union that, that we are now deemed as one entity. Not actually become one entity. We're not merged as one entity, but we are deemed as one. We are in union with him. The second one, and this is probably um, the most important, is what I would call a mystical union. Anybody know what we mean by mystical? What do you think of when you think of mystical? Yeah, mystical is basically, it's a mystery. We don't really fully understand it. Mystical means we don't really fully grasp it. So, if you're an engineer type and when you have everything all figured out, good luck on this one. It's, it's, it's a mystery. There, there's, this, there's this mystical union, this spiritual reality that's not apparent, that's not easily understood. Let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter 5. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. He's talking here about marriage, which also has this mystical union, this this joining, this union between man and woman, husband and wife. We are joined as husband and wife. Here's what he says about it. Uh, In in chapter 5, beginning in verse uh, 25, well, actually, before that, uh, where, where does it start? Really, it starts in verse 21. He's talking about this, this, real, this marriage relationship and duties between husbands and wives. And, and he, he talks about wives, he talks about husbands. Look at the very end, though, verse 32. This is a profound, what? Mystery. Marriage is more than just signing a marriage license. And now we have, marriage is, 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 in fact, a legal relationship. It's a legal union where both of you are deemed as one entity. Vicki and I file as married, filing jointly. We are as one entity. But there's also, Paul says, there's also a mystical, there's a mystery to marriage. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church which is also a profound mystery. We're not really sure and can, can really you know, tear it all apart and take it apart and look at all the different parts and see what it means to be in Christ. But it is some kind of a mystical union where we are joined to Christ, not mere association. He's not just our friend, but we are joined together and this is a profound mystery. And it's a mystery that we are to worship and to rejoice in and to contemplate and to ponder. We are in Him. It's a spiritual reality that is, that is in a large degree hard to really fully comprehend and, and, and interpret and, and, and grasp. But there's a oneness there that we have for the believer with Christ that we are in Him. And again, he says, we have been brought to fullness. The, the atonement, because of this relationship, this union, 
the atonement was all that was needed to save us. The merit by which we were justified is all that we need. We are in Him. In Him, we have all the grace that we need to sustain us. In Him, we have all the wisdom we need to guide us. So this in Christ is vital for us to not fully understand, but to grasp and to believe and apprehend. Now, 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 that leads us to, but what are the specifics? Look with me, beginning of verse 11. Back in Colossians. In Him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. So what's the first thing that's a part of being in Christ? We have been circumcised. Now, is that a literal circumcision or a spiritual circumcision? It's spiritual. Why? He says we've been circumcised. How do we know it's spiritual? Thank you. The context, the verse tells us. It's not, he's not, he's saying, I'm not talking about physical, not by human hands, but by what? By Christ, yeah. That, that you have been circumcised not by human hands. So, this is spiritual circumcision. Now, without going into, uh, we all know what circumcision is. He uses that as an example of spiritual circumcision. That, that, that something now has been removed from us. It's spiritual. Um, and, and look at what he says. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, this is a hard phrase to understand. He, he, it literally says, the body of your flesh. Now, you try, try to start parsing that. Is it, is it the body that is my flesh? Or is it the body comprised of my flesh? Or is it the flesh that is part of my body? And, and, and whenever, if you do a translation study, which I encourage you to do, uh, you'll find a lot of different varieties. They're all pretty close, but a lot of different varieties of how this is translated. I'm reading from the NIV, the new NIV. And, and this says... Your whole self ruled by the flesh. The old NIV says uh, something about the sinful nature. Putting off of the sinful nature. Uh, what does NASB say? What does NASB say? Body of the flesh. So they just left it as it is. Uh, it's probably... If it is the sinful nature, it's probably different than what we see in Galatians because in Galatians clearly makes it known that we still have a sinful nature. So even if he's talking about our our propensity to sin, the putting away of our propensity to sin doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin anymore. So I would opt not for sinful nature because I think that could be confusing because Galatians 5, 16, and 17 talk about uh, this battle between our sinful nature and the Spirit. So, I think the, the new NIV probably gets at it better by saying all... Let me, let me get back to Colossians uh, 2. Your whole self that was ruled by the flesh. In other words, your old nature. When you were ruled by the flesh, that has been put away, which says you are no longer a slave to your, to your old nature. You still have a sinful nature. You still have a propensity to sin. And you always will until you die 
or until Christ comes. So I think what he's talking about here is your, your old self that was dominated by your sin, your old self that was dominated by flesh, has been cut off and removed. You have been circumcised. Spiritual circumcision. But look at verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism. Let's stop there. Having been buried with Him in baptism. You were, about, you were buried. Isn't that interesting? Not, you will be buried, but you were buried. In what sense were we buried already? In our union with Him. Remember? That mystical union. We were buried with Him through what? Or in what? Baptism. Is this literal baptism or spiritual baptism? Why? And why? What's that? Yes, that, that's, that's kind of my thinking. Now suddenly he's, he went from spiritual circumcision to literal baptism. And what about someone who's never ever baptized? Literally bat- water baptized. They're still believers. They're still buried with Him. But this, is not wa- this is not water baptism. Do you know that there's another kind of baptism that the Bible teaches? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is important. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all in its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all, what? Baptized by who? Your pastor? Your elder? Your dad? Who were we baptized by? The Spirit. We were all baptized. We were all baptized. You mean even the person who died was never water baptized? Yes, they were baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. There is what we call a spirit baptism. Now, we're not Pentecostals. We do not believe that spirit baptism is a separate, subsequent event. But at the time that someone believes, they exercise faith in Christ. They are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. They are spiritually baptized into the body of Christ. And so when we're water baptized, it is an outward symbol of that spiritual baptism that we've already experienced. He says, remember in Colossians, what does it say? You should be baptized? No, he says, all of you have been baptized. But what about the ones who hadn't been baptized yet? If this was water baptism... What about those who hadn't been baptized yet? He would have said, well, most of you have been baptized. Or many of you have been baptized. No, he said, all. You have been buried with him in baptism. In spirit baptism. Water baptism is just a visible symbol of that reality. Just as this is a visible symbol. Does this save us? This is a visible symbol of what saved us. Water baptism is, is just a physical symbol of our spiritual baptism, which saved us. So he says, you've been buried with him in baptism. But not just that, verse 12. You have, what? 
you were also raised with Him. You've been resurrected. We have a resurrection life. Not we will be resurrected. We will. But what is the nature of that resurrection? Physical. It will be a fulfillment of the spiritual resurrection we received when we trusted in Christ. You have been spiritually resurrected. You have been spiritually brought to life. And one day, your physical resurrection will be a culmination, or, or, or I should say, a symbol of what has already happened. Do you see how all this it fits together? The symbolism of what it represents, the spiritualities behind what it represents? No, he doesn't say you will be raised. He, we will bodily, but we are raised now spiritually, raised to newness of life. We have been raised. Um, from the dead. Is that literally? Have we literally been raised from the dead? No, we've been raised from spiritual death. What does Ephesians 2.1 say? As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. But, verse 5, but God made you alive. All spiritual realities. We've been circumcised. We've been buried. We have been raised. Verse 13. And we just talked about it. When you were dead in your sins, in, your, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. By virtue of your union with Christ, he, you now have real life. Is, is that literal life? No, because before you came to know Christ, you were... Your blood was pumping and your, your lungs were breathing. And all those people out there that are spiritually dead, they're still walking, they're still breathing, they're still jet skiing or whatever they do. Why did I choose jet skiing? I don't know. Snowmobiling, that's what I should have said. These are spiritualities. We, we, were, we were made alive in Him. We were brought to, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 talks about this. This is what we call regeneration. This is what we call being born again. I gotta tell you, when I was growing up, I grew up in a in a really fundamental Baptist church. And that's the language we used when it came to salvation. Right, brother, have you been born again? You know, that's biblical language. Nothing wrong with that. Because that's basically what it means to be regenerated. In fact, Jesus said that in John chapter three. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God to get to heaven. Here's what our church taught. Our church taught that uh, you had once you once you believed in Jesus, then you were what born again. Then you had new life. Then you were regenerated. But as we're going to see in First John, and as we see in Titus. That's backwards. The Bible talks about the fact that you had to be regenerated first or you would have never believed. How does a spiritually dead person believe? When we were sinners, Christ died for us and he, when we believed, we were raised. It, we had to be born again before we were raised. We had to have new life before we were raised. And it begs the question, if, I, if I'm saved when I believe, then what are we really saying about being born again afterwards? 
It seems to be a, re- a theological redundancy. But, but Titus, 1 John, Ephesians talk about the fact that something has to happen in your heart. Your heart has to be regenerated before you have the capacity to believe. He says, you were made alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He made you alive. And look at verse 14. He, he, he talks specifically about what that means. He forgave us all of our sins. He forgave us all of our sins. And He canceled the charge of our... Now, the NIV, this new NIV, it's a little wordy, but I think it gets at the point. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Now, what might be the nature of this legal indebtedness? Starts with L, rhymes with awe. The law. What was it that really condemns people? The law. The law is holy, righteous, and perfect. And no one can live up to the law. The law is our certificate of indebtedness that is against us. And that stood opposed to us. And was our death sentence. It's interesting, if you read in Deuteronomy, when he, even when he gave the law to, to Israel, he said, be careful to do what? All of the law. If you don't do all of it, you will be under a curse. So, he says, all of the law. So, now what about this nailing it to the cross thing? Remember on the cross, but what was above Jesus' head? Here's Jesus, King of the Jews. One of the Gospels tells us people were insisting, no, put on there that he claimed to be King of the Jews. Do you know what those placards were? On Roman crosses, they would, every criminal that was, that was crucified would have a placard above their head. And on that placard would be listed the, the criminal, the capital offenses they committed that, that, uh, that was against them for why they were crucified. What was on Jesus? Murder? Rape? What was it? <laughs> King of the Jews! That was his only crime, by being God. So, the illusion here is he took all of those, all of the law, all of the requirements of the law that was against us, and he wrote it on that placard that would have condemned you on the cross. And he, he, that was on Jesus' cross. All of our legal indebtedness was on Jesus' cross. Even though it said Jesus, King of the Jews, it really had the law in there that condemned every single one of us. And he said he nailed it to the cross so that when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for your legal indebtedness to the law. It's a beautiful picture. It's a horrible picture, the crucifixion. But you know what I'm saying. And finally, 15, he's disarmed the enemy. Doesn't mean the enemy is not powerful. Doesn't mean the enemy doesn't deceive. But the, 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 the enemy no longer has ultimate power and control over us. The power of the devil has been broken. Quickly, summary. I see four things here, guys. He has give, he's given us spiritual life. He has forgiven us all our sins. He has abolished the ordinances that were against us. And He has triumphed over all our foes. Why would you replace that for Gnosticism? 
for following the guru, the Ramalama Ding Dong, and for buying into man's wisdom. Why would, why would you go from that to that? And I want to emphasize again, all of these things are completed actions. He doesn't say you will be raised, you will be brought to life, you will be resurrected, you will be baptized. He says you already all these things have already occurred. These are completed actions. Number two, some of you need to hear this one, it is not dependent upon your feelings. Sometimes you won't feel like you're raised to newness of life. Sometimes you won't feel forgiven. Sometimes you won't feel that you've been baptized. You won't feel that your legal indebtedness has been paid for. But irrespective of how you feel, these are the things that are true. So we, these are completed actions. They're not dependent upon whether you... Sometimes I don't feel saved. doesn't mean I'm not saved anymore. But the final thing is this. It is a matter of our will. We decide what we will believe and what we won't. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. There are some things we believe we don't even think twice about it. When it comes to spiritual things like this, we go, ah, man, I don't know. I I don't feel that. I don't feel like that. I ask myself the question, why do I believe some things and not other things? And you might be saying, well, evidence. The thing that gives me a lot of evidence, that's what I believe in. What about coming to know Christ? Did you come to know Christ because of all the evidence? There, there is a lot of evidence. But no. Why, why does it seem we have an easier time believing lesser things like empty and deceptive philosophy? Why is it that we have an easier time believing those things and, and a harder time believing these grander things? So here's your application. You need to write this down. Believe it. B-E-L-I-E-V-E. Believe it. There's nothing you have to do or don't do. All you have to do is really believe these four things. And, 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 And it will protect you from every false doctrine, every false teaching, every piece of baloney that's out there that's trying to get you to trade in your filet mignon of Christ. We are in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we are in Christ and all that, all that comes with that relationship. Father, I pray for us that we'd really believe it. That we would, we would take this to heart and we would believe it. And how would our lives be different if we really and truly begin believing these things? We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please...